Welcome to ASME TechCast, where we bring you the innovators, the innovations, and the issues that push the envelope of engineering. I'm Carlos Gonzalez, Special Projects Manager at Mechanical Engineering Magazine. And today's episode is part two in our three-part series on the advantages of acoustic modeling and simulation for industrial piping systems sponsored by Owens Corning, a leader in global building and industrial materials for more than 67 years. They are dedicated to the manufacturing and advancement of insulation, roofing, fiberglass composite materials for industrial settings. We welcome back to the podcast, Doug Fast, a technical leader for industrial mineral wool, and Kevin Harriman, a principal acoustic scientist from Owens Corning. And where we left off last week, we were talking about how engineers need to consider the insulation and acoustic requirements for their piping systems and what's available out there today. And we were leading into this conversation about digital engineering, modeling, and simulation. So at Owens Corning, you guys have just expanded your modeling services to help engineers develop acoustic models for piping installations. Why is this new modeling service coming about? How is it you know, changing the industry? Why did you guys feel the need to do this in the first place? Thanks, Carlos. Good question. I think what happened is, is uh, we knew that there was demand out there for more information. Um, and uh, we were actually testing composite systems uh, for our uh, mineral wool uh, blankets that could also go with uh, our foam glass uh, cold and cryogenic insulation. Um, now, we wanted to have uh, data that showed uh, that we did comply with that, with that requirement of, of ISO uh, 15665. And um, as we started putting uh, together this test program to make sure that we met the requirements of all those uh, different performance levels for uh, a given pipe size, um, we also generated a great deal of data. And knowing that there was a lack of information in the marketplace, um, you know, I approached Kevin and said, you know, we, we have 30 plus um, data points uh, on assemblies that we have, you know, given your expertise, is there any way that you could, uh, uh, we can make a model out of this and, and maybe kind of bypass some of this testing or uh, from our perspective, if we want to go test something, maybe we can predict how it's going to perform before we go do the testing because the testing tends to be uh, expensive and time consuming. And uh, even though we, uh, it'd be nice if we can model everything. Sometimes we have to start it at uh, a given point in reality. The only thing I would add is that um, what we found was when we decided to increase the availability of data on the market, because there was not that much uh, beyond the, the just what's described within the standards. So we said, well, okay, let's let's go out and expand that. Well, then we found out that you know there's there's only a few labs that do this. Now we have to go there. We have to get in line with everybody else. So now it takes, uh, in fact, we just checked with the lab and it, they're, they're three months backlogged. So now we have to wait for three months. We have to gather all of these materials. We have to ship them to the lab. We have to send people and resources there to prepare them. There's got to be a better way. There has to be a better way, uh, faster, right? And, and, um, we had discussed before, you know, digital, how do we make this a digital solution and eliminate having to deal with all of these delays and resource constraints and issues and a cost. And so in doing that, um, creating a simple model. So rather than use some of the solutions that were available today off the shelf, uh, what we looked at was creating a model that rather than simulating the behavior of the materials themselves and how they radiated the sound, 
we created a model that reproduces the test. So it's a more of a macro scale model than a micro scale model. It's very simple to use. We just need to know what materials are being used at each layer of the system. We can design multi-layer multi systems, single-layer systems. Uh, uh, we can look at cryogenic systems. We can look at high temperature systems. That's how this is a game changer because we can do hundreds of evaluations using, using this modeling tool in the time it would take just to call the laboratory and schedule a test. I mean, that's, that's really interesting. So let's, let's start talking about how does an engineer get started? And I really want to highlight what you just said about macro and micro. When I think about modeling and simulation, I'm thinking about the granular details. I'm thinking about the micro. I'm thinking about, I really want to get in there and I want to model this thing to a T. So why is the macro approach better? Well, we live in a, in a big world, Carlos, and because the world is so big, um, if we take our focus down to the micro level, that works great if we're concerned about uh, a stress concentration or a type of failure that may occur at a joint or a specific location. But when we're talking about a 30 or uh, 200,000 square foot factory floor, or uh, you know a, a thirty thousand uh, square foot um, compressor barn uh, and, a, and a pumping station out in a field. Uh, those it, it's very difficult to create a uh, a, a really small uh, micro scale model and expand it out to that size. So and use the useful frequency range because the ear is amazing. It can hear from 20 to 20,000 hertz uh, and provide feedback to people. And that's how we experience our world is through our sight and our sound, uh, how we hear things. And, and because the ear can, can hear over that large frequency range, doing the low frequencies on a micro scale, we can handle that really easily with all the traditional modeling tools. But strange things start to happen localizations, things like that, when you get to higher frequencies, that those models become much more complex and they be, it becomes inefficient uh, to run those models in a large scale environment. So by doing a macro scale modeling, you can actually build in the size of the space into the model and make a prediction that is an average um, over a particular range of frequencies which we're going to call, which we call third octobands or octobands, and predict, make a predictive solution where uh, we can look at how that system, layered system, reacts to a stimuli uh, placed in this environment. So then let's walk through how someone gets started with these models. What does an engineer need? What kind of information do they need up front to start building these models and get and start getting data from them? The first thing we have to decide is, uh, you know, what what kind of plant or what kind of facility are we building? And then, 
you know, as we get more granular, we're looking at the uh, material handles that we handlers that we have with this uh, with this facility. You know, whether it's it's a pump or a compressor or you know whatever that equipment is, and a lot of times that will have a um, a, a, like a sound output associated with it or sound power measurement that, that tells you how loud that piece of equipment is. Um, now you also have the, the piping sections that, that join these, um, these units together and that's always more of a, more of a question, but, um, but there is some guidelines that are out there and the, the ISO uh, 15665 standard is one of those that, that provides guidance. And uh, from that, um, you can start to put it together and have a rough idea on how some of these things are going to work. And there's some other considerations, um, such as where where are these things going to be located on the site? Um, are they going to, you know, where's the the office or the people that that are actually going to hear these sounds that uh, Kevin was talking about? Where are they going to be located? And obviously, we want them to be as located as far away from those sources as possible. So that's kind of where we start. We know that. We um, want to have a quiet facility so that the people that work there um, don't have to wear hearing protection or aren't going to have experience any long-term hearing loss. But we also want to make sure that we're not affecting wildlife that might be at the property line or actually more likely uh, we see people building subdivisions at the edges of, of these uh, where these plants are located. And of course, that can be problematic as well. So we just kind of establish those those parameters. And then from that, we would uh, we would uh, access Kevin to help us, how do we figure out the rest of this to make sure that everything's going to be quiet and, and make sure that we're not going to have these, these problems that we're going to have if we don't make this consideration as we're designing it. Yeah, Doug, I, I totally with you on that. The, the thing that, uh, that, that Doug said, I think that we have to keep in mind is that we really, um, you have to have a desire like at the front end to do it to do it right uh, in the pregame, right? Before the building's built. And uh, it's a lot easier because then there's an infinite number of solutions that we can identify uh, through the application of the model. And really the application of the model is, uh, what we need just need to know is what is the class that you're looking to get uh, as a result? What size, what's the diameter and the wall thickness of the pipe that you're you're going to be using, uh, putting the materials around. And from there, we can put in a, any number of series of possibilities that may get us there and find uh, what we like to call the minimum viable product. In other words, what's the optimal cost, uh, best performing system that we can develop. The issue becomes slightly different if as usually happens, the building's built, there's a noise problem. Now we have to go back and retrofit. Now there's size constraints. So you can't, you, you know, it's it's shimmied into a corner somewhere and we can't get over this diameter. And, and now you've got uh, a lot of more limitations on the op options available to create a cost effective solution in order to meet the requirements to get to the sound level that you're looking for. I mean, I used to be, uh, you know, a, a cab jockey and it's the old saying, right, of garbage in, garbage out. Whatever you put in up front, whatever you introduce to the model at the beginning, if it's, you know, if it's not accurate, if it's not really what you expected, if it's just, you know, a shell of a model, you're, that's what you're going to get as a result. You're not going to get the detailed analysis that you kind of want or seeking for. 
you're, you're, you are absolutely right, Carlos. And that's where Owens Corning is really strong. We're a materials company. We know materials. And the material inputs into the model are what make this thing work. And by having an extremely high level of knowledge of the physical makeup of the material systems and how they work when you layer them together, that's what allows the model to provide excellent results. So then let's discuss once we've, you know, start building this model, what can engineers expect in terms of the data that they'll get from it, right? Because I think, you know, in the engineering world, it's all about the results. <laughs> what are you, what are you, what are you looking to get out of this model? Is it design considerations? Is it material considerations, assembly? What the model will do for you is provide you with a design. Here's the, here's the, uh, the, the list of materials. Here's the layering that needs to occur and how that goes together. And if assembled property, properly using these materials, you can expect to get this class of performance per the ISO 15665 standard. There's, there's many more details that the model can provide upon request, but those are really the important ones to, to the builder, right? They wanna have confidence that it's gonna perform and they need to understand what the materials are and how they're assembled. So once they're in, it should be, and this is, this is a Doug question, um, it should be going forward uh, from a maintenance standpoint, whatever would be a standard maintenance for a, a piping insulation. And I, I think the one caveat that, or the one assumption that we make, and goes back to what you said initially, Carlos, about uh, garbage in, garbage out, we're always making the assumption that things are installed properly in the way that we expect them to be installed too. And so that's, that's yet another hurdle, but, um, but, you know, under the assumption that our product is installed properly and uh, done exactly the way uh, Kevin's model had predicted, then we would expect to have that level of performance. Um, and maybe to, uh, to add a comment, I think on something else that, um, that Kevin is always reminding me of is, you know, it's one thing to, to be able to put inputs into a model I think one of the things that the model um, has done is helped identify uh, some interactions that maybe we hadn't considered. And so um, a lot of times we think we just throw more, we throw more material on it, we throw on more weight and that should cover it, but that isn't necessarily the case. We, we might be trying to do the right thing, but actually find out that we're not really helping ourselves and may in some cases, in fact, be making things worse. So that's the other benefit of the models. It helps to, to kind of guide us from making those kind of mistakes. Well, yeah, I mean, that's great because it's going to prevent you from steering in the wrong direction, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. So then let's, let's touch upon that. How in the, in the experience that you guys have had with this simulation and kind of working out the kinks of, of getting this modeling for acoustic systems underway, what have you find, what's, what's been the most surprising design process changes you guys have seen? Is it you know, like you had just mentioned, um, Doug, about, well, maybe weight is not the answer. Maybe it's material, maybe it's length, or maybe it's, heck, if we try to shoot it this way versus that way, like what are the most interesting design process changes the model has given you that you necessarily didn't expect? I'll comment and then I'll turn it over, over to, to Kevin, but I think, and I think as engineers, uh, and if I look at the way things have been historically engineered is, is if we don't know, we just apply a safety factor and we just 
we just throw more material on and that should cover it, right? Um, but I, I think what we've seen in just about everything we use, um, and I think of cars specifically, but you can see how we've kind of minimized material in cars and, and they're actually stronger and they're, and they're much better than their, the predecessors were. And so I, I think that's what this, this model does is, is it takes that brute force out of it and it gives us, this is what we need to be successful. But, um, I'll, but I'll turn over to Kevin and I think he can provide a little more, uh, a better a detailed explanation to that. Yeah, Carlos, the, there's a, a bit a humorous story that goes with this that really, I think, uh, outlines uh, what you're asking uh, or, or answers what you're asking. So we, we did some validation testing, right? Because you're, as you pointed out, you're garbage in, garbage out. So if we wanted to validate the model, we have to make the model predict something and then go and test it and see if we get the right answer. So we, we, uh, we, we have an expert, an in-house expert who said, well, okay, it, we want to get a, uh, a, a certain class rating on this material, and I think this is the design we should go with. So I, okay. So I, I exercised the model, and the model said, no, you're not going to get that class. It's going to come down to, it's going to be a, the next lower step uh, down. And... Uh, it was like, okay, well, maybe your model's wrong. So we, we ran the test and lo and behold, the, the result came in. It was exactly what the model predicted. And I think that illustrates that, uh, I think that the potential design benefits are that there's no oops, right? If you use the model, because um, the model, you can run many different types of designs and you can test them out. And if you, if, if for some reason you absolutely need to go out and have a have a paper that says I ran this test at this facility and I got this result, you only have to run one test. There is no Plan B or Plan C that you need because when you when you validate, you go right in knowing the answer. So there's there's no um, there's no oopses is what what I would say. You know, a highly technical term like that. No, I mean, um, I can't tell you how many times in my own personal experience I've had to show the floor engineer, for example, no, the, the model's right, because <laughs> more often than not, the computer modeling is going to be a little more on top of the game. Um, if you do, but again, it's all about the engineer at the beginning, the engineer and the process at the top. If the, the this is, In my experience, if the design considerations at the top are done correctly, the model at the end is reliable. That's usually what I found. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, another interesting side note was as we were validating the model, we found that the, the model tends to overpredict on the high side, uh, the higher frequencies. And um, the test data kind of reaches a plateau. Well, upon further inspection of the data, what we realize is the model isn't constrained by the background noise and all the limitations of the testing laboratory. So it, uh, it, it makes the assumption that we don't, we don't have all of this background noise or limitations of our testing equipment, other things that affect the test results. So I, the model is actually approaching what really is gonna happen in the field, but the test lab can only tell you what happened in their lab based on all of their constraints. So I, I, I agree with you completely that there's some interesting things that you learn from that. Right, and as we've discussed earlier, 
the labs, you know, uh, it's wonderful that they're useful and that, that, they're, that they're there and they're, but now they're, instead of becoming maybe the primary source of validation, what they are is a background or a secondary validation for the model to make sure that the model is accurate because just like you're highlighting, the labs themselves have their own restrictions. I mean, if it's not weight, it's the conditions. If it's not the conditions, it's the equipment. If it's not the equipment, it's the facility itself. Exactly, mm -hmm. it's an insurance policy. And you know, since there's so few labs that actually do this testing, we don't really know what the variation is lab to lab. Uh, and, and if there's only one lab that does uh, a, one of the, the largest diameter, who's to tell if their data is absolute? I mean, you really don't have anybody to check them against. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is a good point to stop episode two because next we're gonna be talking about design considerations and how we're gonna be taking this model that we've developed and actually implementing it in the real world. So again, I wanna thank you, Doug and Kevin, for joining us today on the podcast. And for those listening, stay tuned for episode three. Thank you for having us, Carlos. Yeah, thank you, Carlos. I'm Carlos Gonzalez. Thank you for listening to ASME TechCast. And thanks to our sponsor, Owens Corning, for today's episode. If you want to learn more about industrial piping and materials, modeling and installation, please visit them at www.owenscorning.com slash mechanical. That's www.owenscorning.com slash M-E-C-H-A-N-I-C-A-L. And be sure to check out our other episodes of ASME TechCast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or your favorite podcasting platform.